Welcome to another episode of Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. And like always in this podcast is first about discovering, then mapping, and finally cross-pollinating what I think are the various building blocks towards a planetary civilization ahead. Today, I'm sharing this virtual room together with Alnur Lada. Before I say too much about Alnur Lada, I want to share the topic of today's podcast, which is post-capitalist philanthropy. And we're also going to start this podcast different than I've ever done. I want to start it with a prayer. And I want to start it with a prayer because when I met you, Alnur, for the first time in Costa Rica, I did not only met an intellectual renegade or something, somebody that speaks truth to power, but also a deeply mystical human creature that believes in the power of transforming the heart and transforming us individually and hopefully also transform us collectively. So hence, me starting with a prayer before I hand over the word to you, my distinguished guest. So the prayer goes, Dear Mother, I'm just a part of you, Daya. Please forgive us for inflicting the harm that we didn't know better. May you give me the strength to forgive the others as they forgive me. May you grant me the serenity to stay strong when things look like doomsday waiting for us. Please grant me to let my heart stay open through all the pain and suffering that we are causing as the dominant species to you. May we grow up as one human family caring about all other non-human animals and seemingly non-sentient entities. May we heal the wounds we inflicted. May we embrace that happiness is our birthright. May we understand that material possessions are not the end, but only the means to living a fulfilled life. Please grant us the sparkles of hope that we need in this crucial century to embark on a joint destiny of healing. I think it is possible to transition into centuries and millennia ahead as one family on this beautiful planet called Earth. I think it is possible to heal the multitudes of pain and suffering. I think it is possible to create regenerative models of living and being. I think it is possible to share with all fellow beings. I think it is possible to love one another. I think it is possible to bridge the many divides. I think it is possible to hold each other's hands. May we embark on that joint journey with our hearts wide open, firmly grounded in your fertile soil. May we envision and manifest a joint destiny in peace, love, unity, and abundance with you, Gaia. Amen. So with this prayer that some may feel off the charts and the castle in the sky, I think it's what I would call planetary consciousness and which is something that I've very consciously cultivating, but also I needed to heal a lot, my own wounds. So I wonder with the topic at hand, how do you feel with that prayer and what would be your answer? You may also just riff off before you tell the audience a little bit about your background and then the topic of post-capitalist philanthropy, Alnur. 
Well, thank you first for, for starting with the prayer and um, yeah, bringing in the space of, of invocation and uh, will and desire and relationality with, with the more than human world. Um, you know, my sense is not to add to another's prayer, but to let your prayer breathe and have its own space uh, and its own, you know, fertile time in the womb of silence. In terms of this idea of, of planetary consciousness and some of the things that were touched on in the prayer, my sense is that there is no planetary consciousness outside of the Gaian consciousness, right? Like there's this very anthropocentric lens that also comes from uh, uh, Stalt philosophy and uh, Western thinking that the noosphere, for example, is the, the connection of human minds, right? That there's this morphogenetic field that is essentially human consciousness meeting human consciousness. And I think what we're being asked for, and, and maybe this is a spin or a reinterpretation on this idea of planetary consciousness, is for our wills to align with the will of Gaia herself, what I would call like the Gaian entelechy. Entelechy is a Greek word that means like en is in and tel is teleos. So within it, it has its own purpose. So she has her own directionality, her own agency. And part of our task is to uh, decondition ourselves, decolonize uh, our heart, mind, body, soul, psyche complex in order to be more attuned receivers of the dialogue and uh, desires of, of Pachamama. Yeah, thanks. This came a little bit expected, you know, that we're not following the bullet points. I love it. So I feel like it will be a wild mix of a very personal podcast. So I want to share two things out of my biography and wonder what, how they land in your heart, in your own upbringing, and what led you to the human being that you are. So I can share that I come from a community, I'm a community-born child, permaculture, and my father mainly tried to show us wilderness from the Lakota tradition. So he's very like firmly rooted in the North American um, traditions, which basically meant me and my younger brother going out into the woods and collecting stuff to eat and pray before we eat something and like say thanks, for example, to the animals that we uh, helped slaughter as children and stuff like that. And what I very much like about you directly at the very beginning of the podcast is like slaughtering one of the holy cows because I totally agree you know it's so anthropocentric and so western to like dissociate us human beings from all the other let's say mammals reptiles and other sentient beings but including like the plants and the seemingly non-sentient entities and then say yes we got consciousness, this is a noosphere, and we're now on a teal consciousness level. I mean, what a, what a hybris. So I don't have the feeling, you know, we're yet ascending into the topic of post-capitalist philanthropy, but I'm really curious in your own biography, how did you handle this like tension in between this huge pain I was like totally overwhelmed by the collective pain as a child, as an adolescent, as a young adult. And it took me 
I would say a proper 20 years journey to really just make sense of myself in the collective zeitgeist, but also in the maybe zeit heart, you know, because I was overwhelmed and everything seems to go down the drain and everything points into doomsday. But at the same time, I have the duty to be happy, to make a difference and to be like as powerful as possible to at least try and make a difference. So to circle that back to you, Alnur, yeah, can you give me some biographical, let's say, um, yeah, pivotal moments that made you the human being that you are? You know, I think really two two main aspects, and they're they're related. Uh, my parents were and are East African um, immigrants to to Canada, so they they were first generation. I was first generation born in 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 Canada, um, and they come from a Sufi lineage, and so especially on my dad's side, uh, who are U Ugandans, my mom's side are Zanzibarians, um, they were exiled in 72 and, and displaced. And there's something about that displacement that is, that is very powerful. So that, that's really the, the first thing is like just coming from a, a culture of not belonging and, and also having quite an internationalist lens and a sensitivity about what's happening in, in, in the rest of the world, right? Having living with grandparents who are uh, exiled and lived in a refugee camp and, and then sort of immersed in this like strange uh, culture of the West. And, and that's that, that having that sort of mystical tradition as well and having oral tradition, a very strong oral tradition uh, and spiritual practices really like grounded us and rooted us as community. But it gave us the distance to see how unwell Western culture was. And I think in that sense, that was my saving grace, right? Like I wasn't born into a culture where it was like, uh, you know, how do we become better at this game or how do we become included? The understanding was we'll never be included. And we actually have ancestral cultural ways and practices that uh, uh, are, are as equally as valid and in, in many ways uh, more resonant to our souls, to our beings, to our hearts than the culture we were uh, implanted in. And, and so in that sense, uh, we were kind of outside enough to, to be able to hold the critique of the, the illness of the culture, but also you know, deeply appreciative of the culture we were in. You know? um, and so we could take the best aspects of it without being totally indoctrinated or totally socialized. And, and both my parents handled it very differently. You know, although my, my dad came when he was 19, he had, uh, he just recently passed, he had more of a Canadian accent than I did because he really wanted to be assimilated in many ways. And my mom, who comes from a, a, a very long uh, oral tradition of Sufism, of Islamic mysticism, you know, would say things like uh, when I would want to go ice skating uh, or play hockey, you know, and I would come back and she would say, you know, being in the cold, on ice, on this sort of matchstick thin razor blades, uh, beating up other boys is uh, very strange behavior that these Canadians do. But if you think it's interesting, you can go ahead and do it. There was no like good or bad, you should or you shouldn't. She just contextualized it for me. So I, I wasn't just in the, the kind of um, mass hallucination of culture, which is what culture really is. You know, it's a collectively shared, agreed upon set of delusions. And so in some ways you have to step outside of that collective uh, delusional dreaming 
and and deconstruct it for what it is. And so I had the ability to do that as somebody who was like a third culture kid, as sociologists would say, you know, I was of that culture, but not of that culture. I wonder where this tension to belong and at the same time not belong led to a point in your biography where maybe the tension, the friction and the pain was so strong, at least I was many times just overwhelmed and was it was impossible to for me to sense and feel actionable steps where I could make a difference. So I wonder in your biography, when came a pivotal moment of a deep transformation where you found your place to say, ah, you know, that might only be a tiny puzzle piece in a cosmic, uh, infinite, infinitely complex, uh, yeah, almost like a jump and run game or something like that, but where you found your place to make a difference. Um, there, there was uh, sort of multiple points. I, I think, if, you know, it, it wasn't so linear in that sense for me. I think growing up in a tradition where there was like a deep uh, spiritual practice and meditation practice and, and a practice of what I guess Buddhists would call mindfulness, but we call zikr, which is remembrance. Um, th there was always a, a kind of grounding and an anchor uh, in another form of consciousness. So although I was, you know, similar to you, right? You read the climate science, you you work in the social change sector. And there's this sense that what we're doing is futile and pissing in the wind. And the, the, the kind of scale and the complexity of the problem is so massive. And in some ways that never changes. You know, that, that fundamental, like what Camus would call the, the absurdity, you know, this kind of, conflict of these two views right the internal view which is like we want to take the world seriously and do good work in the world right and the external view of like destruction is just accelerating and uh anthropocentric uh ignorance and arrogance and extraction is uh, speeding up uh the the so-called end of the world as we know it right and that the conflict of those two things is always present but when you let the absurdity have its way with you and you open to another possibility then and you find that crack in the in the external shell of what we're told reality is uh, something opens you know and i had definitely had moments of that where you know for example uh, when i was a student organizer i was at the seattle uh, wto protests in in 1999 and this organizer said climate change is not man-made it's capital made if you don't understand how global capital works you have no use to the climate movement and that there was something in that moment that really uh shook my understanding you know i was studying climate science and doing uh pre-law to be an environmental lawyer and i realized i knew nothing about how the global extraction machinery works and worked And so that, that was a key moment. There was a moment in when I lived in London uh, after grad school and I had my own political consultancy. And I started to realize how these big NGOs that I was working with and for um, were part of the problem, you know, that they were in the job creation business and trying to perpetuate their, their existence and uh, actually didn't want to and could not. It's not that they didn't want to. They structurally could not 
address the problems uh, at the scale that we needed them to. They couldn't even say the most basic truth, like capitalism creates climate change. You know, and if you don't diagnose the problem correctly, you're never going to get to the answer correctly. And they can't diagnose the problem because the funders would, who are giving them the funds to exist would not let them say the obvious truth. And then I had another moment when I lived in New York and I used to run an incubator for social movements where these big foundations came and hijacked uh, our agenda. And you realize, oh, there's an upstream here. Like we, we are naively thinking that we're just in the civil society sector. But that gets funded from somewhere, right? And where does that funding come from? And, and in some ways, um, there's a great Stephen Jenkinson line, if you know him, a teacher on death and dying who wrote Die Wise. And he says, um, uh, betrayal is the feeling of naivete leaving your body. Betrayal is the feeling of naivete leaving your body. And I, and I think that is the moment of lucidity where the uh, absurdity becomes so profound that uh, uh, you can only be betrayed because the one side of the calculus of that absurdity was you were giving it too much weight. And, and I think those are the, the, the cracks into, this, uh, into, into more lucid ways that refine your way of being in the world. So first of all, really a big thank you uh, just for life force. Um, allowing the two of us to meet because in my own humble observation of let's say in this sector at large let's say social entrepreneurs activists NGOs fourth sector um, all of these people most really want to change something but as you say if you can't diagnose the problem right? How will you possibly be able to design uh, remedies on a very core fundamental um, level? So I wonder if this is a good moment to dive into some of the basic assumptions of post-capitalist uh, philanthropy. And I don't feel at least that would be my big wish. We should stay too much on the level of the diagnosis. But as you know, I have my bullet points in split screen. So I wonder if you could summarize, let's say, the task and the magnitude of the problem that many people seemingly don't see. And or I would say, they have so much skin in the game and they need to pay family rent and they have been working in this segment for NGOs for so, how, for so long that it's just the normal human behavior. You know, you need to shut your eyes if the internal conflicts become too, too, too strong that you would have to make like drastic changes in your life, which is a normal um, social behavior that, that we as um, human uh, beings um, yeah, have to play, I think, uh, to a certain extent. So, yeah, I wonder how, how would you summarize uh, the, yeah, the magnitude and the entanglement of the problem at hand? I, I think your starting place was a good starting place where you said there, there's so many people in the social change sector that want to do good, right? And, and so, well, the calculus of the thing would be the sheer amount of people who want to do good and their willingness to do good and their intention should somehow translate 
into efficaciousness, right? Effectiveness in, out in the world. And that's not at all the case, right? Something else is actually happening, which is that the conditions for life on this planet are degrading at a very fast level. And so then the question will like, why is that the case, right? So we, we don't need to analyze the, the meta crisis and the ecological breakdown and all of that, right? We know on some level how bad the scale is. Now, of course, if you're a climate denier or what have you, or you're a new age ascensionist, you believe the world is getting better or, you know, a techno utopian and you believe technology is going to somehow solve these problems. Well, like there's no dialogue anyways we can have. There's no communication we can have. Like beliefs are so strong. I, I think there's maybe four layers we can look at this. First is from an evolutionary perspective, it's very hard for the human neocortex to be able to grok and track nonlinear change. So when we, you know, evolutionarily growing up in the, the, the savannas and sort of flat areas and uh, having an abundance of food as hunter-gatherers, like our cyclical body clock is a, uh, you know, our circadian rhythm is a 24-hour rhythm, right? And when we do the longer cycles of uh, menstruation or annual cycles or, you know, it's a very short range temporally. And now when we start looking at a 10-year, 20-year, 50-year horizon, like, We've never had that forecasting ability outside the last 150 to 200 years. That was never cultural discourse on what the world would be like uh, with, with the level of specificity. Now, of course, wisdom traditions um, and cultures worthy of the word culture would think seven generations ahead or perhaps uh, 100 generations ahead, but in, in very specific ways in how the land was left, how food was cultivated, uh, how relationship with ecology may have been. And that's very different than the prediction of the wholesale of massive diebacks, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are topics that the human mind can't necessarily fathom on time scales that we're not evolutionarily prepared to deal with, right? And of course we could, but it would require cognitive labor that most people don't want to engage in. So it's not impossible, but just as, as broad cultural discourse, we need some form of bridging, which then takes us to the second level, the cultural level, which is uh, privilege is a constraint, right? Most people will not tell us that, but privilege is a blinding constraint. We're taught that actually we want to acquire privilege, right? More money, more resources, more power, but actually, the more of this we have, the more constrained we are in terms of empathy for other human beings, understanding how the majority of the world lives, uh, being able to predict and navigate the future outside of our comforts. There's a high level of constraintment that happens, especially which helps us especially understand the West, Western Europe, North America, developed nations of Australia, Japan, South Korea, etc. that um, our comfort is numbing us. And, and, and that that's also true. I think there's a third layer to this where we want to feel like the work we're doing matters as an and is important, right? So I know people at the Gates Foundation who think they're saving the world. Uh, I know people at ad agencies who think they're just being creative, 
even though they're contributing to the uh, ongoing exploitation and destruction of the living world. We can rationalize anything. We can create alibis for anything we do. And, you know, Hannah Arendt used to talk about um, when, when she was observing the, the Eichmann trials uh, after World War II, talked about the banality of evil, right? How ordinary people could engage in, in sort of evil acts. Um, and I think now the diagnosis has changed to be the banality of good. You know, that that through the guise of doing social justice work and uh, great work for the greater good and working in civil society, that actually we are the, the you know, SS troopers of capitalist modernity. We are the prophylactic sector that allows the system to continue a little bit longer because we make everyone feel good about what's happening. You know, we're both the siren and the lullaby. We're like, hey, something bad is happening. Oh, but we'll take care of it, right? The NGO industrial complex will take care of it. Live aid will take care of it. You just give your dollar a day to charity and somehow we will solve the world's problems without ever addressing the structural drivers, the root causes, the historical precedents that led to this moment in the first place, right? We wanna say, make poverty history without ever acknowledging that history makes poverty. And then I think the fourth and last aspect to say about this is that, and related to the last, is that when we start to see neoliberalism or late stage capitalism, which you know, I just think of neoliberalism as the latest chapter of late stage capitalism, that these are complex adaptive evolutionary systems, right? That capitalism is alive, not the way an ecology is alive, but the way an AI or Frankenstein is alive. And so it's self-perpetuating. And we're told that the merit system works, right? You go to the best schools, you get the right job, somehow you will be elevated to the top. But actually how the system works is that it pulls the people that best serve its logic to the top. And if we see the world through that lens, then we realize, well, what, what is the logic of the system? Well, we just look around us, right? It's short-termist, greedy, extractionist, uh, about self-acquisition, uh, about hoarding, about commodification, about transactionalizing other beings, human more than human. And so the people who are good at that logic are the ones who get pulled to the top. And when you internalize that reframe, instead of looking at the cover of Fortune magazine or the New York Times or CNN or whatever, as these people are somehow interesting and worthy, we can just see them as the most psychopathic, the most willing to serve the logic of a system that is dying. And so what then is required of us is to be good students of our culture, to really understand the impoverishment of the life-destroying culture of neoliberalism. And I, and I call it a culture because it's not just a political economy, it's a theology. It's a social cultural milieu. It has a point of view on the fact that he, the belief system is human beings are inherently selfish, that we are inherently competitive, that hierarchy is necessary, that the market system is the freest, best system uh, to distribute wealth, that the market has this invisible godlike hand that if you do not have wealth, you're a failure. If you have wealth, you're somehow worthy. 
And it's all enshrined within this idea of separation from the living world, materialism, right? We can reduce things to their constituent parts and rationalism, that we can understand the world through our mind. And this theology is so deep and, and it's, we're so conditioned and entrained into believing it that uh, the, the only way out of this mess is to be able to stand outside of the culture to then determine how you want to proceed. If we don't do that, we do what everyone in the social change sector is doing, which is uh, reformist approaches within a life-destroying system. We are pruning leaves on a dying orchard. Thanks. After feeling we're at a very deep and very critical like inflection point in the conversation. So for those that did not drop out yet, my first question would be, how can you step out? What are ways to step out? How can you build the capacity to really step out? What are frameworks uh, to step out before we then at least try to sketch some, some, let's say, possible, I would not call them solutions, but more like tentative ways to look beyond, like you said, you know, stitching a dying, uh, uh, you know, horse or band-aiding a system, which is yeah, obviously uh, going to crumble, like obviously. Yeah, this language, this idea of pathways, I like. Um, so th there's the the obvious, which is being a good student of, of the culture, as we mentioned. So like, what does that mean? Well, if we spent uh, a third of the time we do in, let's say, the self-help industry, you know, reading Tony Robbins or Joe Dispenza or whatever people are reading these days, in contemplation of the spiritual political implications of late stage capitalism, reading books about what's actually happening in the world, sitting in contemplation about that, just a third of the time, we would already have a revolution on our hands. But we compartmentalize what's happening out there versus what's happening in here. And you know, part of the argument we make in post-capitalist philanthropy is that there's an inner outer mirroring happening. And that what's required of us is a spiritual political praxis that these are not separate things. And so contemplation and analysis of the context we're in, being more, what we would say, contextually sensitive will make us more contextually relevant. So that's one pathway, one area. A second is, as soon as we start to diagnose and feel into what the dominant culture is and how it lives in our body somatically, how it lives in the communal body, how it lives in the body politic, we start disidentifying with the dominant culture. And this is critical, right? As soon as we're identified with the, with, with the uh, dominant culture, my critique of the culture or your critique of the culture is going to feel like somehow an offense to our beingness, right? Because um, look, if you believe that your water comes from taps and your food comes from the grocery store, you're gonna defend that system with your life because that's your mother and that's your father and that's what you know, right? And if you uh, drink in the Kool-Aid of nationalism and patriotism and you believe that your nation state is what keeps you safe and is protecting you, you're going to defend that system with your life as, as many do. But it, it, as soon as we get into this work of cultural, political, spiritual practice, 
and we start uh, reclaiming our sovereignty as not just political beings, but spiritual beings, we can start to disidentify with the dominant culture. And that leads to openings. And, you know, the eventual aim would be to be a conscientious objector to the life-destroying system. Like in the 1940s, it was very easy to decide who was the bad person, right? The mustachioed fascist uh, leading the genocide. And when you have a complex adaptive evolutionary system that is so seductive, you know, it can deliver you Amazon.com goods on your doorstep and give you a VR to, uh, you know, check out of reality with, to disassociate with and give you all your comforts and all your needs. It's very hard to know who the enemy is. And part of what ha is happening is we have to decide um, are we in service to life in the living world? Do we put our anchor in the ground for collective co-liberation? Or do we continue the growth-based, debt-based individual extraction model? And we're at this very stark bifurcation point in history. The shadow is getting darker. The light is also expanding. But it's, a, it's, it's, it's that kind of crucifixion moment. Um, and there's decisions that have to be made. And I would say the the pathways to get outside of culture, they're infinite, right? S psychedelics, meditation, silence, yoga, dance, tantra, yantra, mantra, like whatever uh, boundary dissolving activities can allow you to step outside the culture, even momentarily, to better diagnose the culture that is going to give the perspective to be able to understand what the culture is doing to us. But it also requires critical thinking, a desire to want to know, a critique, right? Because if you believe things are going well and everything is great and there's a microwave in every house and look at GDP is increasing and progress is happening, there's, there's not much use to, to working with medicine, to, to working with these spiritual practices. And so I often say, like, it's not just the technology, whatever that is, the psychedelics, the, the, the sweat lodge, the dark retreat. It's also the ontology. The ontolo by ontology, you know, uh, onto is like the Greek word for, uh, for being, sometimes interpreted as seeing. So it's how you see, relate, interact with the world. It's our isness of the world, you know, our philosophy of reality is our ontology. And so the ontology feeds the boundary dissolving experience, right? And the way we make sense of what's happening to us when we get to these states outside of ordinary consciousness. And we, when we get to non-ordinary consciousness, the ontology that we hold in our ordinary waking life is feeding that. And, and the two feed each other. So there's an active responsibility to develop our ontology, to develop critical thinking, to look around the world and say, evolution is not something happening outside of me. It's happening through me. I'm not just going to be a passive recipient of the world and use new age tropes to say, this is the way it is. Well, this is all oneness. That may be true on one level, but non-dualistically, your desire to change the world is also influencing matters, being and becoming. And, and the, the two are discursive and uh, self-reflexive and uh, non-linear. 
And so it, there, there's a practice that's required and it's not that difficult to do, but it has to start with a divine discontent, <laughs> you know, a divine dissatisfaction with the way the world is to say, I no longer want to be, my highest goal is not to be a marketing manager at some packaged goods company. That's something more is being asked of me. And that also may require us putting our head to the soil and asking Pachamama what her will is and how do we be in service to the guy in Enteleki, to the guy in whole. Thanks, Anur. So English is not my mother tongue. So it's really just also beautiful to listen into the heart behind the intellect. So I think what touches me most is to develop the capacity for myself, but for us as human beings to hold the discontent. And I know certainly for me in my biography, I have a very early childhood accident, you call it PTSD. And it took me a very, very, very long journey to hold the paradox that my father actually told me ever since I was a small child. And he told me always, I don't know if there's something like enlightenment exists, but the paradox of life is, can you truly hold your heart open to the infinite amount of suffering and pain and injustice in this world and nevertheless try to feel joyful and full of strength? And I certainly know from my own biography that it took me a hell lot of a time, effort, resources, um, focus, dedication to really develop these um, yeah, capacities and to, to become a conduit which can hold that spectrum of emotions and be able to process them and not just get overwhelmed. Because the way that I see the collective situation is people are just overwhelmed. They don't have the capacity, you know? It's, and if we don't develop the capacity to hold these difficult emotions and to process them and then find our, some call it ikigai, some call it purpose, I don't really mind to really try and make a difference because ultimately it's just like trying to make a difference. So from this rather emotional, spiritual realm, Anur, you've been analyzing the situation. I don't really have anything to add or comment or riff off, but when you see your different biographical phases and now moving to the, let's say, centerpiece of the dialogue, post-capitalist philanthropy, why the hell philanthropy at all? I mean, there's also a big spectrum, anything from people that would say, I mean, just talking to philanthropists is basically, you know, talking to Nazis, you know, because you brought it up, you know, like we're the SS troops, you know, band aiding a system that's basically leading to further extraction. And on the other hand, obviously, all those who are saying, yeah, you know, it, it, it will only be philanthropy that can solve the problems. So I wonder how, why, first of all, the, the terminology post-capitalist philanthropy and in this great inflection point or the crucifix, like you were mentioning, where we see everything's going haywire on the one side and at the same side, also a collective awakening of an order of magnitude that in the first wave of the psychedelic renaissance was not even being able to yet yeah, to grasp. So where do you sit the whole topic and how can we like, 
yeah, maybe summarize high level what you're aiming at and then dive deeper within the different uh, topics. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I was very resistant to write anything about philanthropy uh, or even uh, be involved in the sector. And what we started to realize, uh, so Lynn Murphy, who's my co-author, uh, was worked in philanthropy for a long time. She was at the Hewlett Foundation. She did her PhD in education, was enmeshed in this kind of global education, philanthropic complex. Uh, and I was on the, the other side as an activist and organizer, spending 20 years fundraising for, for organizations. And when you look at the upstream of who's funding the social movements and civil society, it is big philanthropy. That's where the majority of funding is coming from. Unless you are a completely volunteer run, you know, kind of Gandhiite, uh, nonviolent organization that's, you know, peasant movement, farmer movements, indigenous peoples, et cetera, that has no institutional funding, most of civil society is being funded by philanthropy. And so philanthropy is only one vector into the world of post-capitalism. And by post-capitalism, we're not referring to some ism that comes after the fall of capitalism. It's more the way um, academics talk about postmodernism, right? There's no dash between post and modern. It, it's informed by, right? So you, whatever new systems are, are, and simultaneous systems that are emerging are not outside the understanding of how dominant uh, and all pervasive the capitalist system is. So there's a line in the book that says, if you do not have a critique of capitalist modernity, you are contextually irrelevant. If all you have is a critique, you are spiritually and creatively impoverished. So the first part of it is really to the new age, you know, uh, and those who think they can be outside of a structural historical understanding of power and still be useful uh, to the system. It's like, you have to understand that capitalist modernity works. You have to understand the oxygen that we are breathing. And the second part of that is, if all you have is a critique, you're spiritually and creatively impoverished. And so we have to have lived alternatives to create embodied cultures of possibility. And philanthropy is one sector where there is huge amounts of power and wealth concentrated. It's very untransparent and opaque. There's something like $2.2 trillion uh, moved last year in philanthropic spending. You know, that's the equivalent of Canada's GDP. Most people know nothing about the sector because they don't have to. There's IRS tax codes and all these uh, donor advised funds. And there's a whole structure uh, that prevents that transparency from happening. Um, they're also very susceptible to public pressure right their their entire existence is based on uh public funding that's where the tax breaks comes from right the uh taxpayers are giving them those tax breaks and so it just seemed like a very powerful leverage point and there's people within the philanthropic industrial complex who want to contribute to the creation of what we would say as new ancient emerging cultural contexts and so philanthropy is just one lever point and a very powerful one and could be a very useful one. Do I think it's gonna solve all of our social problems? Absolutely not. Uh, do I think it's a monolithic uh, entity? Absolutely not. There's some amazing work happening in the philanthropic sector that allows some of the most interesting work happening in the world right now. And 
we have to approach it with that level of nuance. And so when we say post-capitalism, it's really about values, right? So we just look at the existing system and say, what are those values? And then how do we do the opposite? How do we create embodied cultures that are based on cooperation, altruism, generosity, gifting, reciprocity, dialogue with the living world, solidarity, interbeing, and structure systems and cultures around that? That is essentially what we mean by, by post-capitalism. And it's not some temporal future that's going to happen. It's happening right now. Uh, the Zapatistas live post-capitalist existence. Not that there's no money, it's just their critique of the existing system allows them to not be co-opted by the existing system and to create simultaneous alternative lived realities. It's true for Rojava and, and the Kurdish autonomous state in the Middle East. Uh, it's true for many indigenous cultures. It's true for uh, many peasant movements, farmer movements, uh, landless people's movements, women's movements, etc. Those who are uh, politically organized outside of the dominant culture. And, and there's no purity in this, right? We're, we're all entangled in capitalist modernity. Like I may live here in an alternative community, but our farm truck uh, is a Toyota made in a Japanese production line and it requires fossil fuels. And, you know, our clothes are most likely made in sweatshops. And it's, this is just the, the, the messiness of what it is to be alive in late stage capitalism, uh, so close to the moment of collapse at least for the economic system. Uh, you know, there's debate on how long and in what way ecological collapse will, will drag out. But th this kind of uh, Western-induced paradigm has a very short shelf life. And uh, it has enmeshed all of us and it is so totalizing. And so we really have to understand and decide what role we want to play. And those working in this uh, messy, muddy world of philanthropy have an especially important role to decide, you know, archetypally, what does it mean to be a money hoarder at the end of time, right? Archetypally, what does it mean to be a technocrat doling out someone else's money while the majority of humanity is keeping body and soul together and 200 species are going extinct every day? There's karmic spiritual implications to these things that are never talked about. And part of the inquiry of the book was to like, let's open up the dialogue and the discourse around what this means, not just politically or materially, but also spiritually and somatically. I think the only other human being that I know in my biography that can both hold the level of complexity, but also the level of emotional bandwidth and having the most critical conversations with institutions and philanthropic bodies is uh, Indy Johar. And um, I wonder if you could share, without mentioning names, some of the conversations with big institutions out of the machinery, so to say, and how open do you find those institutions to really allocate more than just a tiny fraction of the mentioned two trillion a year to really at least fund experiments and prototypes to make a systemic difference to create ripple effects that do not only serve to perpetuate the mega machine that's doomed to fail and is at the end of its shelf life so yeah curious on more like examples 
Um, that's the one thing. And the other thing that I'm really curious from those um, politically organized um, people that you mentioned from the Kurdish to the women's movement to the indigenous, also how that ties into the conversations uh, that you're, yeah, that you're having. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the book has come out of uh, six, seven years of working with funders, uh, initially through the rules, which was this economic, uh, economic alternatives think tank and, and social movement support organization that only lived for eight years. So from its inception, there was a, a, a kind of sunset clause, let's say. And halfway through that, uh, we started working with funders uh, under this rubric of the transition resource circle which now exists as its own kind of spin-off. And there's these gatherings uh, once or twice a year where, where funders and funder activists come together and, and sort of go on this collective journey. And I'd say there, there's been a huge shift, even just in the last two or three years from the willingness of funders to go from like, I'm in my uh, um, Ivy Tower, uh, disconnected from the world, making these big financial decisions for people who live in the geopolitical South, you know, in Brazil, India, South Africa, uh, to I'm starting to understand the messiness and the entanglement and the level of presence and responsibility that's required. And I want a community of practice to think this through with. So we've had everyone from uh, tech billionaires who have recently made their money in the last five or 10 years to heads of major foundations, um, to uh, you know, third or fourth generation scions that have invested, that have um, inherited uh, billions of dollars in wealth, and realize uh, this is not their decision to make alone. And and I think the big insights that are coming from the space that we're seeing, and this is of course you know, the more radical edge. Even though there may be big organizations or members of those organizations, this is not at all. The majority of philanthropy right the ford foundations of the world the open societies the gates the rockefellers like they're going to continue doing um reformist incremental uh, extraction based neo-colonial philanthropy and the the culture is changing slowly but we are seeing this vanguard and within that vanguard some very important players and it could tip the culture and the major themes of this are this is the world's collective wealth this is the world's collective endowment. We have made the money on the backs of poor people, uh, brown bodies, black bodies, indigenous bodies, female bodies that we have exploited through a system that has arbitrarily put value on certain people's work over certain people's work and then put into an abstract system that uh, where essentially capital begets capital, <laughs> right? If you have money, we've in invented the idea of compound interest then all of a sudden I'm sitting on a couple billion dollars uh, without any correlation to merit or intelligence or worthiness. And there's that, an acknowledgement of that, which I think is very powerful. The, the second is there is an understanding that we have a very short window of time left. Things are not going to continue on as they are. So even if we look at the growth debt-based system, you know, economists and, um, the World Bank and others will say, we have to grow the global economy at 3% a year, right? Your growth has to exceed your interest for money to be valuable. That's the economics 101 of it. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that requires the doubling of the global economy every 24 years. 
And there is a consensus among economists, ecologists, and others, there will not be another doubling of the global economy, right? We don't have the resources to double global GDP one more time. So we have a, a material limit at, you know, 20 years. And it could be much sooner than that. There's ecological factors, there's feedback loops we have no idea about. And so there's this very strong recognition in the halls of power that um, there's going to be drastic discontinuous change. And let's use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure, land sovereignty, food sovereignty, water sovereignty, energy sovereignty, et cetera, at a bioregional level, at, at, you know, where rivers begin and end, where forests begin and end, uh, where we have a, a shared understanding of what can grow and uh, the quality of the air. And let's use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure and create resilience uh, in, in face of climate chaos and catastrophe. And so there is this very strong recognition. And then I'd say the third major recognition, so it's, you know, this is not their wealth, that there's an opportunity, a very short window to use capital to build post-capital infrastructure. And I'd say the third major insight and uh, revelation is that there's something beyond the materialist, positivist, reductionist worldview that is playing itself out. Even hardcore materialists with lots of money who believe that they have sort of uh, achieved some checkmate uh, state with their with their wealth and power are like, oh, there there is spiritual karmic consequences to what's happening that we don't fully understand. I'm getting dreams I've never had I've been in dialogue with ancestors I've never been in dialogue with. I have a call to plant medicines that I don't know why. My life is being turned upside down or I'm deeply unhappy. I'm very depressed. Everyone around me, uh, my children have ADD or on Adderall or doing high amounts of cocaine. You know, it's like even the one percenters are not happy in the existing paradigm. And so there's a willingness right now uh, that I've never seen before. And it doesn't necessarily make me optimistic. It makes me present and attentive to the moment. Uh, and whether philanthropy as a lever will change anything or not, it doesn't, that, that's not, my, my aim is not like some very rationalist theory of change where it's like, let's find the acupuncture points of the neoliberal system. You know, I do that on some level. And on another level, it's like, we, this is the upstream of social change and we have to move the floodgates of philanthropy. And I don't know what the effect or the consequence will be, but I know it's useful to do right now. And, and um, it supports, and this is the second part of your question, um, it supports the social movements and indigenous peoples that I feel the strongest allyship and solidarity with. And I feel are um, the most important players in the reconstruction of a of a post-capitalist world and central to the book you'll see is the five elements mandala um and I, I think we've talked about it before and we don't need to get into a lot of detail but um that's essentially one of the frameworks and one of the maps of how do we bridge the world of philanthropy with the world of of social change we haven't touched on that so maybe we should do that now but i will ask you the question before so first of all, thanks that given the orders of magnitude of change and the quantum of capital that we need to mobilize in a very short amount of time, 
and also being humble to the fact that yes, philanthropy can be a powerful vector, but even the sum total of Canada's uh, GDP uh, per year won't change uh, the system, but it can build like pathways that can finance big scale experimentation. It can make, yeah, contextually more relevant experimentations um, open to, to more people out there. So I wonder before you answer to the question that I'm going to ask you now, if this like mandala makes sense to share uh, with the listeners, my question would be with that big vector of wanting to move the needle in big philanthropy and open the floodgates, um, where do you need support? Where do you have the feeling some of the allies, some of the cosmic constellations that you would like uh, to see are not there yet and they are needed in the mix? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, you know, in some ways, um, I really, like, I don't know, you know, it, that, that's the, 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 the honest answer about it is, is, um, we're, we're in this kind of experiment of having dialogue with, with funders and, uh, funder activists and key allies in the space. And there, there's a, partly a desire, uh, and there's partly a strong resistance, right? Because as we said earlier, like privilege is a constraint. And um, what I'd say is uh, to, if people feel called is to um, gift the book, you know, and I, I'm not in the business of selling books, even my own books. Um, you know, we, we don't make any money off the books. 50% of the proceeds go to Daraja Press, which is this Pan-African publisher that publishes um, uh, radical work that no one else will publish. And 50% goes to a solidarity fund to bring people to the transition resource gatherings from the global south. So I, I don't promote it to, to sell a book, but to promote it to say, it's not even our ideas. You know, there was 150 interviews with cosmologists, with indigenous elders, with funders, with activists that have uh, made it made their way into the synthesis of that book. And it's just a useful artifact. Uh, there's also, for people who consume information differently, a webinar series um, that's on the Transition Resource Circle YouTube page that's um, available that has elders like Teokas and Ghost Horse, who's a Lakota elder, and Vanessa Andriotti, who wrote Hospicing Modernity, and Vandana Shiva, and Dr. Rupa Maria, and others we're in dialogue with. So there's a five-part webinar series um, to help uh, spread the word about that and, and put that out into the world. Um, and then there's the gatherings um, that we'll, we'll, in the next month or so, we'll open up uh, applications for next year's gathering uh, here at Tierra Valiente in Costa Rica. So there's, those are three avenues in, in terms of support to get, uh, especially for activists who are working with funders, to invite the, their, their funders into these spaces and into this discussion and dialogue, which is difficult to do because of the power dynamic, um, right? When someone is giving you money to also be able to challenge their, their worldview. And part of our role is to kind of do that for the activists, to serve as, as proxy and allies. Um, and then I, I won't get into the uh, five elements mandala in detail, but to say the kind of notion of it is that um, the earth, the, the, the base of the mandala, uh, which is the element of earth, is around creating post-capitalist infrastructure. So creating this resilient uh, 
bioregional ecosystems uh, that have their own sovereignty. Um, the air element at the top uh, is around creating new ancient emerging cultural contexts, creating new uh, discourses that shift the very culture in which we can have these discussions. Uh, and then the, the fire is uh, solidarity with social movements, uh, especially in the global south, historically marginalized peoples who are organizing their, their bodies and their voices um, for, for their local needs. Um, and the water element uh, is solidarity with indigenous peoples, you know, the tributaries, the veins of Pachamama, those uh, peoples that have unbroken uh, symbiotic lineages with the living world and, and are the stewards and gatekeepers of ecology and ecosystems. And then the fifth element of ether is the recultivation of life force, which is often ignored. You know, uh, we would call it maybe healing work, uh, right? And to say that not only activists should be funded for that and given the space and the time, um, you know, a, a dear friend, Bayo Komalafe often says, part of the crisis is the way we're responding to the crisis as activists. And so to be able to get into that non-ordinary state, to be able to have the space and time and the silence to, to see how we're contributing to the dominant culture uh, is part of it. But that's also true for funders, right? That funders also need uh, healing work. And, and in some ways, this ether is like the alchemical precondition for state change. We, you know, the times are urgent, let us slow down. Like let us create structures and systems within uh, civil society and within philanthropy that allow us to step back and metabolize the changes that are happening in the dominant culture and give us the, the space to re-enter the continuum of life and death with renewed purpose and meaning and vitality. Anwar, I feel very grateful for having had this conversation. I have the feeling this was more the start of a deeper getting to know each other and hopefully a cross-pollination beyond uh, just the buzzword. And also I find it very organic that you ended with ether in the private conversation. When I stopped the recording, I want to share something on that with you because truly I think if we don't pause, if we don't take care of our own embodied nature as human beings, certainly I'm in a way lucky that life crushed me so many times that I had to do like humongous amounts of inner, inner work to be finally able to funnel that much of life forces through me and at least try to make a difference. As you have already been mentioning possible avenues to interface with you, and we will also uh, share in the show notes, you know, the links. Um, I wonder, is there anything that you want to share with the listeners as we're closing this conversation today? Um. The, the kind of Sufi impulse in me is to say, um, on, a, on a mystical level, there's only one of us here having a collective experience and also having a, a, a non-dualistic, uh, but yet individualized experience, uh, right? A separate spiritual cognitive 
experience of being Alistair or being Alnur. And to uh, sort of enter that space of, if there's aspects of what I share that resonate, then it's your uh, highest self reminding you of what you already know, to, to not necessarily create separation or the, the need to have contact, but to say that these ideas are our collective ideas. And so move with them as you will. Uh, I don't need to be special in the story. Uh, I don't need to be centered, nor does the book, nor do the ideas we share. But uh, uh, that our loyalty and fidelity is not to people or to organizations or institutions or nation states, but it's to the living world itself. It's to the living cosmos itself. And um, to reattune and align ourselves to that, as opposed to the story of uh, separate individuals who are interesting or uh, uh, objects of our projection. You know, it's, it's beyond the individual. And in some ways, uh, the transpersonal is the most personal. Thanks, Alnoa, for the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, good to spend time.